if we're not the smartest, but possibly we're the meanest, that doesn't sound like it's going to work out too well for us. No, no, but uh, okay, I have hope for the future because <laughs> okay, good. Please, uh, please uh, for two, for two reasons. For, for two reasons. One, indeed, uh, throughout human history, you see uh, a lot of crimes and, and um, injustice being done by people who want to feel superior relative to other people. And the best example is the Second World War, where 75 million people died as a result of the Nazi regime. Uh, that, and, and the, um, you know, that, that is 10 times more than COVID-19 uh, killed throughout the the world you know so far and yeah. just 10 times you know 10 times more by just a group of people deciding to feel superior relative to other people that that's amazing to me um and my hope is that if we find a smarter kid on our block it would basically demonstrate that the differences between us humans are not so great you know they're meaningless in a way because there is a much smarter kid on our block and then perhaps that would teach us an important lesson and uh, convince us to treat each other with more respect as equal members of the human species. Meanwhile, at Harvard, the focus is on the skies. Astrophysics professor Avi Loeb co-founding the Galileo Project to invest in high-tech telescopes, infrared cameras, and specialized AI software, hoping to collect scientific data on the kinds of mysterious objects that have been spotted by fighter pilots who say they seem to break the laws of physics. The answer to this question will have huge implications for the future of humanity. It will affect our aspirations for space, and it basically affects each and every aspect of human life here on Earth. And when you pair with the launch of the James Webb Space Telescope, with the ongoing commercialization of space exploration, the search for evidence of life on planets like Mars, or at very least, evidence of life that once existed there. You know, when you look at all of the different things that are happening, Professor Avi Loeb and his Galileo project, which is raising private funds for the search for evidence of extraterrestrial life, among other things, some of those things even closer to home. Yeah, indeed, in 2022, we may begin to formulate the clearest picture of really historical realizations and also mind-expanding possibilities. Galileo project will only work with new data collected from its own telescope systems, which are under the full and exclusive control of the Galileo research team members. Rule number two, the analysis of the data will be based solely on the known physics and will not entertain fringe ideas about extensions to the standard model of physics. The idea will be freely published and available for peer review as well as to the public when such information is ready to be available, but the scope of research efforts will remain in the realm of scientific hypothesis tested through rigorous data collection and sound analysis. Rule number three, to protect the quality of its scientific research, the Galileo research team will not publicize the details of its internal discussions or share the specifications of its experimental hardware or software before the work is finalized. The data or its analysis will be released through traditional scientifically accepted channels of publication validated through the additional peer review process. All members of the Galileo team project, including researchers, advisors, and affiliates, share these values and uphold the principles of open and rigorous science upon which the Galileo project is founded. And now, sit back and enjoy the show. Copernicus, 1543, discovered that the Earth is not the center of the universe. Galileo, 
1642, the father of observational astronomy. Christian Huns, 1695, provided an explanation for the rings around Saturn, suggested the possibility of extraterrestrial life existing on other planets. Thomas Gold, 1950, founder of the theory, The Steady State of the Universe. Fritz Zwicky, 1974, proposed the theory of dark matter. Avi Loeb, 2021, Harvard professor and creator of the Galileo Project, the most significant attempt to document the skies of Earth and provide an explanation of the UAP phenomenon. Welcome to the Crime Scene Time Machine. Scott Rhoda is a crime scene reconstruction expert, having traveled the world investigating countless murders. You are here because you are interested in the truth. Buckle up and let's take a ride in the Crime Scene Time Machine. And today's guest on CSI Outer Space is Harvard professor Avi Loeb. Hi, Scott. How you doing, professor? How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. So, uh, first of all, on the crime scene time machine website we're going to have links to the extraterrestrial book we're having a link to get to the harvard um uh website to make donations for the galileo project but i do want to ask you about a couple things in the news that i think are okay. relevant particularly um uh hit on your area of expertise so okay. your goal is to raise a hundred million dollars for uh in private funding and um now compare that to the 700 billion dollars that was just passed recently in the senate for military spending in a time of peace um i'm just curious your reaction to that disparity in investment right so um searching for technological equipment from another extraterrestrial civilization you know is an international matter it's not a, a matter of national security and um you know in principle it should be funded by all nations uh, and um, of course we are worried about adversaries in other nations and um, we need a, a large uh, defense budget for that purpose but um, if we just think about it as a scientific endeavor where we're trying to learn about our cosmic neighborhood just to figure out whether we have neighbors and whether we are the smartest kid on our cosmic block so it would make sense for us to invest uh, a level of funding that is comparable to the largest scientific uh, experiments because this is a question that the public cares a lot about and that would have huge implications if we find something uh, on the future of humanity so uh, the biggest scientific projects cost 10 billion dollars and an example for that is jwst that is being launched um, this coming weekend and uh and is 
trying to look at the universe in a new way and find evidence for the first galaxies uh, that existed early on and uh, look for uh, the properties of planets around and stars. The, the, and the James Webb Telescope, I just read earlier today, um, uh, allegedly is going to be able to identify the farthest black holes that originated at the Big Bang. Is that is that what the hopes are for this? Well, it's, it's black holes exist in uh, as far as we know in almost every galaxy. So it's really trying to find the earliest galaxies that formed in the universe, and we have you know that has been my focus area uh, early on in my career. I, I basically was uh, among the first to to propose uh, research on, in this area, trying to find the first stars, the first galaxies, sort of like the scientific version of the story of Genesis, how the first light mm. was produced. And uh, I wrote two textbooks about it and hundreds of scientific papers. And when I started working on it, it was not a popular subject, but um, in the 90s, uh, the James Webb Space Telescope was conceived in part the main motivation was to look for those very early galaxies. Um, so here is an example of an investment of $10 billion. And there is another example of the Large Hadron Collider that also cost roughly that much. And uh, there, uh, the main motivation was to actually, in addition to finding the Higgs boson, which was expected, uh, it's, it was to find supersymmetric particles. These are new particles that we haven't found yet that could make up most of the matter in the universe. So the point is to discover new particles that you can create as a result of smashing uh you know nuclei against right. each other and uh those particles were not found so we invested 10 billion dollars we discovered the higgs boson but didn't really discover new particles that were not expected uh, that were not found um and uh, so that sets the scale you know we're talking about 10 billion dollars to find new physics uh, to get new uh you know understanding of nature and i i regard the, the search for uh other civilizations as uh, you know as uh, fundamental for our uh, existence you know and and we want to really figure out if we are the smartest kid on the block whether there is someone else out there and um it would make sense in my mind to invest uh, billions of dollars in that search and so far there was nothing invested in the search for relics from other civilizations you know objects that were manufactured by civilizations that predated us by a billion years you know we are sending out spacecraft to uh, space interstellar space and um and it's and we know that most of the stars formed billions of years before the sun and we know that about half of the sun-like stars have a planet the size of the earth roughly the same separation so it would only be natural for us to say okay well maybe there was a technological civilization that predated us by a billion years and it had enough time to populate the entire milky way galaxy including the solar system with equipment and uh, of course it's not a philosophical question that we can we should debate forever uh we should simply search and you know 70 mm -hmm. years ago enrico fermi uh was discussing the possibility of other civilizations out there at lunch in los alamos and he raised the question where is everybody and in my view you know this this question is pretentious because you know it's just like someone sitting at home and saying nobody's 
knocking on my door. Therefore, I may not have neighbors. But that's the wrong approach. You have to look through your windows. And you better, you better use telescopes when you look through your windows in order to find out if you have neighbors. It's just like uh, sitting next to the ocean and saying, I don't see any fish. Uh, well, if, uh, if you don't use a fishing net, you will not catch any fish. And right. So the, the, the correct question for um, Enrico Fermi to have asked, and he didn't ask that question, is how can we allocate funds? funds uh, to search and put meaningful constraints on on those uh, uh, you know on, on relics from other civilizations and you know that's pretty much what the galileo project is doing for the first time now 70 years later and my point is you know a lot of scientists say oh extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence well first of all it's not an extraordinary claim to argue that something like us existed before us i mean i see that as a more uh, sober uh, assumption than the one to, that says that we are unique, special, privileged, the only one, the first one, and the smartest in the entire universe. You know, that to me is very arrogant uh, to assume. I so, did. So, yeah. so that's the first, the first thing I wanted to say. But then the second thing is extraordinary evidence requires extraordinary funding. So just asking for evidence without putting the funds for the search is a circular argument because if you don't search, you won't find anything. And of course, you know, it's um, so the mainstream can maintain this, this view that there is no extraordinary evidence, that it's not beyond a reasonable doubt and they can raise doubts. But at the same time, there is no funding for this search. And that's why I established the Galileo project, which uh, for which I got the private funding and there are more than a hundred scientists engaged in the search for objects that look unusual near earth and uh, you know i'm a theoretical astrophysicist i'm a theorist but nevertheless i realize that we should be guided by evidence not by prejudice right and being here from the terrestrial uh world in my area of expertise is crime scene reconstruction which is you know uh, very much about humans uh, very much about uh, small pieces of evidence and how they relate to um, whether somebody committed a crime or didn't commit a crime. What's the totality of the evidence? And I manage a small crew of experts and uh, engineers and artists and so forth. And it's very difficult at time getting people with different areas of expertise to collaborate on a single issue. And then I look at uh, the Galileo project and the wide range of um, scientists, activists, um, uh, uh, maybe people that might be, um, I, I think you call them advocates. Uh, and in, in my world, an advocate is the same thing as a lawyer, it means they're making an argument and they might represent a client or they represent an interest. Is that what you mean by advocate? Well, um, so uh, in the Galileo team, I, I brought in people that represent both sides of the argument. There are people that say uh, that... Should these there be a side, though? Well, let me explain. So yes, there are people that say that objects that we see that behave in an unusual way near Earth may represent uh, an origin which is artificial from an extraterrestrial uh, civilization and uh, because they cannot understand the, the properties of these objects as being a, a result of a human made objects or natural objects. Okay, so there are people, and of course, if they had conclusive evidence that they can share with the public, I'm not denying that the government may have some conclusive evidence or something that looks very plausible, but it was not shared with the public. There is no airtight 
data that we can all look at and say, okay, there is no way out. It must be extraterrestrial. There is nothing like that that was released so far. And I, I'm not denying that it, that it might exist, but it was not released to the public. It's not open data. And then the second uh, group of people says, okay, because we have seen only fuzzy images that are not conclusive, because you know, we don't have um, any um, extraordinary evidence. Because of that, it's most likely something natural or human-made. And um, I brought into the Galileo project people on both sides because I don't think that it matters what your view is. Uh, I mean, you just need to be intrigued by what uh, was released so far, what we know so far. And then the Galileo project has uh, is building telescope systems that will collect new data. And once the data is rich enough, once we have a high resolution image of an object, uh, we can figure out what it, what it is, whether it's human made or not, whether it's natural or not. Uh, it's easy to tell the difference between a rock and an object that has screws and bolts on it, okay? And <laughs> yes. uh, my point, it's not a philosophical question. It's just a question of getting enough data. And that's why I don't think it matters what your initial view is. And that's why I brought these people into the collaboration. Uh, and eventually, I think everyone will converge uh, once we have good enough data. Well, I think the great point is that you are not trying to... to come at this with any bias. You right. have a scientific approach and you may be bringing in people who have interests or bias or preconceived notions about the history or the foundation of the evidence that they perceive as solid evidence. But you're saying, if I'm reading it right, let's start fresh. Let's look at evidence that we personally capture, we control and we can evaluate it in the light of day, then there can be no cynics or critics, uh, at least because you've brought them into the fold and you've revealed to them your process. Right, exactly. Um, you know, I approach this problem just like a kid in a way, because I don't care what people said before. And um, a kid usually is being told by the adults uh, what the truth is, but the kid is trying to figure it out uh, himself or herself by collecting, uh, experiencing it. And that's why kids often get bruised because they're not afraid of anything. They just check it. And, you know, that's the spirit of science. Science is about getting evidence and being guided by it, not by what people say about it. You know, in the days of uh, Galileo Galilei, he argued that um, the earth cannot be at the center of the universe because it seems to, to it, it did seem to him as if the, it's very likely that the earth moves around the sun. And at the time, there were these philosophers who lived in a virtual reality. You know, their virtual reality was that we are really important. We are at the center of the universe and that flattered their ego. And they were really happy about this virtual reality. It's similar to, you know, putting these goggles about the metaverse that, that mm. uh, Facebook is now trying. That's to dangerous, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, and then, and then, of course, you can be happy. You can get pleasure from living in a reality, imaginary uh, reality, uh, in which you play an important role, in which you always look good, in which you are always happy. Uh, but the only problem is that it's not the reality shared by everyone. It's not the real reality. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, and of course, you can be happy, but uh, only for a while, because if someone would have asked these philosophers to design a space mission to send out a rocket that would reach some celestial body, okay, uh, then they would get the wrong 
parameters of this rocket because they would send it and it will not reach its destination because they had the wrong idea about the motions of objects around the earth. So they would, suppose you told them, okay, I want a rocket that reaches the sun. They would send it, but it will never reach the sun because it, it, it just moves in the wrong way. They don't, they didn't, they didn't realize that the earth moves around the sun, not the sun moves around the earth. So obviously they would get it wrong. So my point is, when you are living in a, a virtual reality that doesn't really reflect the reality we all live in, uh, you make mistakes because your ideas about reality are wrong. And uh, the only way to figure it out is by looking in this example through Galileo's telescope. And that's what the philosophers resisted. Mm -hmm. They put Galileo in house arrest and the, today they would have canceled him on social media <laughs> and and the point is reality doesn't really care about how many likes one has on twitter on whether or whether the majority of votes goes the other way reality is whatever it is you know and the same is true for whether we are the smartest kid on on the block and whether there there is equipment floating out there from other civilizations so you know we can deny it we can say we don't have extraordinary evidence we can even bury our head in the sand right and don't not see anything we can raise a lot of dust and say we don't see anything of course you can do that but the fact that you can't see anything doesn't mean anything about what's beyond that dust you know that there might be a reality out there there might be neighbors there might be equipment floating in space and if we fail to recognize it we will not uh, behave appropriately you know if we realize that we are not the smartest kid on the block we will behave differently in the future it will change the future of humanity it will also change our aspirations in space it uh it would uh, allow us to learn from those smarter kids uh, now i want to go back to what you said about i'm like a kid right I, I, when i was reading in your book i you you have a lot of examples that kind of have this youthful innocence uh kind of metaphor to it you talk about your children and how that when they go out they didn't realize that there are other kids that were cool too right uh and they weren't special and then we talk about your undergraduate students and if they would get on a trip and yeah i'll go but then you ask them would you go beyond a black hole knowing that your social media wouldn't work and they're like no way uh and, and then we, we we look at social media and, and i recently did an episode called the evidence of social decay uh kind of relating the deterioration of common courtesy and congeniality to this filter that social media kind of uh, really is controlling the entire civilized, I don't want to say civilized, but technological world, um, because you're only getting to see people with a filter. You can only get to see people on their best day. If social media was real, we would all be having pimples and our hair is bad and the, there's clothes on the floor and there's dishes in the dishwasher. And, and, but my point is, it's the reality that people choose to look at, just like those uh, philosophers, just like those people in the days of Galileo, they chose not to look through the telescope. Right, that right. Happened, and, uh, yeah, so that's, that's exactly my point, that, um, you know, as humans, we prefer notions that make us important, um, and we select those virtual realities. But of course, um, we make progress because eventually, you know, nobody remembers these philosophers, right? Now everyone remembers Galileo because that's the reality we live in. And so my hope is we will keep marching in the right direction as long as we 
pay attention to evidence and learn from the evidence rather than uh, being uh, chained to our preconceptions like and dogma right yeah I mean, exactly but but the way to learn is to collect more evidence because okay. it's just like you know you are deciding to go to a class in order to learn i mean if you don't go to the class you would never learn so in the context of learning about reality the class is being given by reality itself you have to do experiments you have to look at the sky if you want to find neighbors you have to look through your windows if you stay at home and say nobody knocking on my door then you will never learn about your your neighbors and um and so uh, the re the real uh, uh recognition is that of the mainstream of science to say this is an important question the public funds us the public cares about this question this is a question with a lot of implications for the future of humanity therefore we should allocate funds to this question now how much funds is is a matter of debate and i would argue that it's one of the biggest questions that we can face and therefore it should be at the level of billions of dollars but even if someone says no 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 we you know there is a lot of uncertainty i would say at the very least hundreds of millions of dollars we invested these kinds of funds in the search for dark matter in uh, specific types of particles weakly interacting massive particles and we haven't found anything after 40 years and uh, you know if if we were to search for equipment from other civilizations for 40 years and invest hundreds of millions of dollars which is pretty much what the galileo project needs um then in 40 years we would be exactly at the same point where the the people who search for dark matter are right now they haven't found anything and they spend all this money so why should that be uh, part of the mainstream whereas the search for equipment from other civilizations should not be Yeah, I mean let's let's talk about the mainstream for a second. Now you talk about mainstream science uh in the academic uh uh and then you know we also look at uh the media and I hate using the term mainstream media but you know you look at the the basic channels the ones you get on regular TV and then the the four basic cable channels and um you know i'm a bit of a, a news junkie and i guess i i guess i would probably say i'm like you're an accidental physicist i am an accidental um uh podcaster uh and an accidental investigator on things that don't have to do with me being hired to work on a murder and uh, the the accident came up because um um i i broke my foot playing baseball and i had all this extra time that i wasn't playing baseball so i decided um to talk with some old friends and we were investigating the JFK assassination and one of my uh, 95 year old dr Cyril Weck actually was you know around at 36 years old at the time Kennedy was shot and the first question i asked for him i said dr Weck after 50 years why are you still investigating the assassination of John F Kennedy because the truth matters right and he is 95 years old and he's still writing books about the assassination of John F Kennedy it's proven beyond all reasonable doubt but yet people still put a conspiracy hat on it and they think it's silly. I was watching the news last night and Shepard Smith and they were talking about the Galileo project and interviewing you and what did they do? They played the X-Files theme music to your article. I find that inf- infuriating that the mass consumption media poo-poos this with 2-minute articles but yet they'll spend, you know, uh 365 days talking about 
something that maybe isn't really even um, uh, as important. How frustrated are you, not only with mainstream science, but mainstream media in picking up this message? Well, I'm, okay, so um, I'm, I'm not, fr uh, well, I was frustrated by the pushback from the mainstream scientific community because, you know, I, I, it, it was deja vu for me because I saw it in, on other frontiers of science that I, promoted over the decades of uh, being a practicing uh, theoretical astrophysicist. Like early on in my career, I suggested looking at um, uh, the first stars, the first galaxies, the scientific version of the story of Genesis. And uh, back then, I remember there was uh, a paper that was submitted for publication and the reviewers uh, they said that um, this paper should not be published because we all know that the galaxies did not form uh, earlier than a few billion years after the Big Bang. And, uh, and I later on wrote hundreds of papers and two textbooks uh, showing that uh, the first stars probably formed when the universe was younger by a factor of 100 relative to what these reviewers were talking about. So they had completely wrong ideas. And now the JWST, the James Webb Space Telescope, is planning to observe those early galaxies. So here's an example of you know, a big investment the mainstream community made eventually. And early on, when I started working on this subject, people had, you know, ridiculed this subject and said, there is no way that the stars or galaxies could have formed very early in the universe. And another example is uh, gravitational wave astrophysics, where I gave a lecture at the winter school in January 2013 uh, to uh, students basically describing this as an exciting future frontier. And 10 minutes into my talk, another lecturer in the winter school stood up and, and said, why are you wasting the, the time of these students on a subject that will never be important throughout their career? And then uh, two and a half years later, in September 2015, the LIGO experiment discovered the first gravitational wave signal. And now it's the most exciting frontier. The Nobel Prize was awarded a few years ago for that. And so obviously this young lecturer that was criticizing me didn't realize that just two and a half years later, the same students are, were still doing their PhD. And this field became the most exciting in astrophysics, <laughs> just to show you how wrong people are. And I have this deja vu feeling also with the search for technological equipment, because there are all these intriguing um, uh, reports, you know, there, there are the unidentified aerial phenomena that the director of national intelligence reported to Congress. And, and now in December 2021, uh, Congress decided, uh, legislated the formation of a government office to look into that, to assemble the data in a coherent way and to remove the ridicule and stigma from the subject and yet the scientific mainstream is is ignoring this subject and there was also this first interstellar object that we found uh, in in 2017 called Oumuamua on which I wrote a, a book and many scientific articles um, that didn't behave like a comet or an asteroid and I suggested maybe it's artificial in origin from another civilization and you know combining both of these uh, triggered the birth of the Galileo project for me. And I also got um, donations to my research fund from uh, various people that were inspired by the vision that I advocated for. So now you ask me, 
Am I frustrated? No, I, I decided to channel my frustration into the Galileo making or establishing the Galileo project, uh, which will try to collect the data that uh, will be indisputable, that uh, the data that would be beyond a reasonable doubt. And uh, I realized that once we have that data, of course, everyone will... will uh, uh, have to agree with the interpretation given the quality of the data. And we're trying to assemble, uh, to use the best ins instruments we have and assemble uh, new telescope systems. And then the data that we obtain will be open to the public and the analysis will be transparent. So we are bringing a breath of fresh air into the subject that, uh, you know, until now, you know, much of the data was classified behind closed doors, so the public couldn't see it because the government collected it. And then at the same time, uh, the scientific community ridiculed it and didn't really engage uh, in trying to collect new data that is open. Let me explain why this Please. is. Uh, so the reason that um, the, the government-owned data is classified is because it was collected by instruments, sensors, that are classified. The government doesn't want our adversaries to be aware of all the sensors being used to monitor the sky around the US because, you know, it's a matter of national security. You don't want to reveal um, the equipment you're using. And because of that, even if you see objects that are, have nothing to do with other nations, you would not release that data. So the, the reason the data is classified is because it was collected by government-owned sensors. And it's not about the data itself, it's about the sensors that were used to collect it. So the point is, if we are now within the Galileo project using off-the-shelf instrumentation that we buy, you know, just uh, uh, in the commercial market and, yeah. and we put together the sensors ourselves, then the data will be open to the public. The sky is not classified. And if there is low-hanging fruit, and we are taking this path that nobody else took in, you know, in the scientific community, then we are likely to discover uh, and, and pick up this low-hanging fruit. So that's the rationale behind the Galileo project. And uh, rather than being frustrated with the government not releasing the data, I mean, we shouldn't be worried um, about, about uh, the government not releasing the data if we have our own data, you see. That's and right. uh, the only thing that limits us is the level of funding. So currently we have $2 million and uh, what we need is a about a hundred million to be able to make enough copies of those telescope systems and put them, you know, hundreds of them in different locations so that we get enough statistics on unidentified objects. So that's currently the only thing that limits the Galileo project is the level of funding that we have. But my hope is, you know, what we need is of order a hundred million. That's a small fraction of the budget of the Large Hadron Collider that we mentioned before, or the James Webb Space Telescope. It's only 1% of that. So my hope is there will be some wealthy individual that would say, okay, I, I believe in the... ...to Elon Musk later today. We're going to be chatting about that. We, actually, it's funny that you uh, brought up Elon Musk because we do need to call out to the Jeff Bezos. Hey, Mr. Bezos, did you make about a billion dollars just today on Amazon? Let's let's give some money to the Galileo project. Uh, how about I'm going to call my friend Matthew McConaughey out there in Austin, Texas. Um, uh, Matt, 
you got you got to give something. I'm giving something. We all got to give until it hurts. You have to give representative to how much cash you have, right? So uh, Dr. Loeb knows how much money I gave, and that would be representative of how much money I have in my bank. So it's not a lot. Please don't tell anybody. But we did give. Um, so we do want to get that call to action. Well, we are we are grateful for your contribution. And one thing I can guarantee is that you know we have a team of more than 100 scientists, really top-notch, the best scientists. And we will do a rigorous and careful job. And I'm sure that anyone that invests in this project will be proud of their accomplishments because Absolutely. we are already uh, assembling, uh, you know, within the coming months, we'll assemble the first telescope system on the roof of the Harvard College Observatory uh, on the Harvard University campus. And once we are happy with the uh, performance of that telescope system, it will include, for example, it will take a video of the sky in the optical band during daytime and look for objects that reflect sunlight, but it will also have a video of the sky in the infrared uh, using sensors that can see objects also during nighttime. And will we will have- strobe effects? Because okay, here's why I brought up Elon Musk earlier. He said that Boston Dynamics now has robots that can move so fast that you will need a strobe light to see it on film. And with the reports of the five observables that uh, Lou Elizondo has mentioned with regard to this gimbal and the go fast, we're talking about speeds in excess of 24,000 miles per hour, allegedly, if their instrumentation is correct. How uh, can you capture that if you don't know where it's going to be when it shows up? Well, we will definitely capture that because we are looking at the entire sky all the time. Okay, so we have constructed uh, a design for our telescope system okay. that monitors the entire sky. So it doesn't matter where the object is. It's not as if we have a tracking camera that is following a single object and not looking elsewhere. If that was the case, then you need to know how the object maneuvers and you have to track it. But we will cover the entire sky all the time. So irrespective of what the object is doing, we will see it as long as it's bright enough, as long as it's not too far away. Uh, and so that's exactly the idea. We have a, an optical telescope system and an infrared telescope system. So also during nighttime, we can see objects that are warm. And we will also have an audio system, a sound sensor, a, a microphone that is extremely sensitive, and also a radio sensor. So this will make up the first telescope system we put together. And uh, you know, currently we have $2 million, so we can build maybe five copies of that. Mm -hmm. But if we had $100 million, we will have hundreds of those systems. We, we can put them in many places. Uh, just, you know, within uh, 2022, we can already start getting very useful data. And, and the data will be available to anyone that wants to look at it. Um, this is a scientific project where we will write scientific papers and analyze it in a transparent way. And uh, if anyone invests funds in it, uh, you know, we will obviously be happy to, to share the data with whoever puts the money into it. So, right. so we can uh, have if, Elon Musk dedicated. So, so Elon, we could get your name on this thing, you know, uh, speaking, speaking, and we're going to get back to that because I want to get into the technology a little bit. Um, now, when you're talking about the technology, I'm throwing some of these note cards out because uh, some of the technology um, obviously, is there going to be any predictive positioning 
of these uh, telescopes. For example, um, I would think that if we're going to be trying to do anything predictive, it's like um, on Earth, right? There's uh, we've got the equator, we've got our longitude and latitude, the Earth, you know. Um, so uh, I would think that we would want to be focusing in on uh, the North Pole, uh, Antarctica, uh, Mexico City, Egypt, and uh, maybe somewhere out in Russia, so that we are at the, what I would think, and just being a casualist, you're an expert, you're a specialist. Uh, there are people that follow this that maybe are generalists. They have a, but then there's most people are casualists, right? Um, but as a casualist to your subject, you know, maybe we're going to look at the Dulce, base, Dulce Basin. How about um, Joshua Tree or Skinwalker Ranch or Jerusalem or Mecca? Can you target high activity areas? For yeah. capture, so that, we have a subgroup that is actually looking at all the available information that we have about the UAP reports, and we will try to optimize the locations. And one thing to keep in mind, our telescope systems will be mobile, so we can actually move them uh, around. And um, now, the one thing you like find... In the back of a car or something? Like, how big is it? Yeah, you can move it on a truck. I mean, the, the, it will not be too heavy. Uh, but the point is, we need hundreds of them in order to cover enough of the sky so that we have a good chance of capturing, based on the reports, the rate of reports, we will have a good chance of capturing a lot of them over a year. And for that, we need the funding of 100 million, as I mentioned. But um, there are, of course, claims that uh, many of the reports are concentrated around nuclear uh, sites uh, uh, or around military bases. One thing to recognize is that these are the places that are patrolled most often. So it may be a selection effect. The other thing that is often uh, uh, recognized is that, you know, the, if you were to look at the distribution of reports, uh, UAP reports, uh, it's very highly correlated with uh, the population, you know, so uh, you have a large population density along the coasts of the United States. That were, that's where most of the reports come from. And for, for that, you know, the simplest explanation is, you know, that's where people are. That's where people are looking at the sky. And that's where you get most of the reports. And the question is whether there is anything beyond that. So is there more? Uh, are there more reports in some particular areas? We are looking into that. And, yeah. um, and eventually, I mean, we are not at the point now where we have the telescope systems at our disposal and we have to decide where to put them. But obviously, we'll take all of that into account. Dr. John Mack got a lot of blowback from Harvard and the scientific community back in the 70s and 80s uh, for his book on alien abductions. And uh, I don't know if he ever really regained his status in the scientific community before his untimely passing. Do you have any words to people that have read his books? And obviously, that's a whole different take on this subject matter, but it is related to the subject matter. He is an alumni there, and I was just curious your thoughts on that. Yeah, so as a physicist, a scientist, um, you know, we cannot use... Uh, humans as detectors. That's not a reliable, I mean, even though in the courtroom, you know, you rely on eyewitness testimonies, uh, eyewitness testimonies do not hold water in the case of scientific publications. You can't write a paper saying, this person told me that, and therefore, you know, uh, the laws of physics are like that. This doesn't hold water. So the way science or physics goes is that you, uh, 
measure things with instruments. You measure quantitatively and instruments do not have prejudice. They don't have right. wishful thinking Fear. And, and they don't have qualitative reasoning and they don't have hallucinations. So instruments just give you a number, you know, they measure something and that's the way physicists work. And this Galileo project is a physics project. You yeah, know, absolutely. we are trying to measure. And so I would much rather have a high resolution image than have a thousand, uh, you know, abduction reports. Or right. I don't really care what people say. I want to get the yeah. physical evidence. Now, some people may not be happy with that notion. They might say, oh, well, but we are telling you that we saw this and that. And I say to them that physics is not done this way. Physics is not based on what people tell me. Physics right. is based on me putting instruments that measure something. And then I analyze what these instruments are measuring. And then I write a scientific paper explaining what they measured. You know, it's just like um, someone drawing a sketch of something that you saw. Okay, you draw a sketch and you say, here, here is the evidence. This is what I saw. I say, I don't believe the sketch. I want you to take a camera with high resolution, take an image of that object and give it to me and then I can analyze it. There is a huge difference be between a sketch and an image because a sketch may have impressions that are not real. You may add details that are not real. I don't want those details. And I don't care how much you were impressed by what you saw. That's not part of the evidence. That's part of your psyche. And that's not a, a, a component of the scientific process. Your psyche is not supposed to play a role in the way we interpret reality. Because very often, people say the wrong... I mean, they just have wishful thinking. Like yeah. those people that didn't want to look through Galileo's telescope, okay? You might say, oh, they had a prejudice. But if you were to ask them, they would say they're 100% convinced that the sun moves around the earth. Look at the sky. The sun moves around the earth. You see the sky... Uh, in the sky, the sun is moving. Therefore, we are at the center of the universe. They would tell you, that's my personal impression. But Galileo said, here, I built a new instrument that gives you new evidence. It's not just you looking at it and getting the impression. You, you Here is a scientific instrument. Just try to look through my telescope and you figure it out. And they refuse to do that. So what I'm saying is, in order to avoid prejudice on both sides of the argument, you know, I don't want to ask people, oh, were you abducted? Really? Okay, that will be the that will be the basis of my scientific paper on the subject. This person tells me that he was abducted. He can draw a cartoon where he shows me how he was. I this is not scientific evidence. Okay. Now this is what Mac focused on. He just focused on those sketches. Well, and that's I his said, area of expertise. He's like, yeah, I don't I don't you know there are people that make shoes. Okay, yeah. I have nothing against that. Uh, there are people that you know uh, that are uh, making cars. I have nothing. It's just that I'm a physicist. Okay, well, so I I don't pretend to be a shoemaker. I don't pretend to be a car maker. I don't pretend to be a, a psychologist. But I am saying that physics, the way I describe it, is responsible for all the electronic gadgets that you have. If you look at your cell phone, it's based on quantum mechanics. Quantum mechanics was not derived based on people saying, oh, I have the impression that reality behaves this way. Because right. it, 
the quantum mechanics was figured out just by experiments being completely contradictory to what people expected. Even Albert Einstein had a problem with quantum mechanics. The only reason we have quantum mechanics is because instruments measured something that nobody expected. And then we had to adapt to that. And it was the instruments that educated us. It was not people. Yeah, it was not people saying, I have this impression about reality. Maybe it's quantum mechanics. Right. Nobody thought about it. It was experimental data that said that forced us to go in a direction that we didn't even expect. And even after the experiments gave us the data about quantum mechanics, Albert Einstein said, oh, it doesn't really make sense. And late in his career, he said, it doesn't make sense that quantum mechanics has spooky action at a distance. And today we know that it has spooky action at a distance. Right. It's called entanglement. And yeah. we are using it in many devices. So my point is the cell phone or actually just the way that the two of us are communicating is based on knowledge that was gained through experiments done by physicists. It was not based on conversations that people had and talked with each other about the impressions they have. Because very often those conversations went in the wrong direction, including after the experiments about quantum mechanics, Albert Einstein had the wrong notion. So I'm saying physics fundamentally is based on instruments, measuring things and educating us rather than us looking at something and telling other people what our impression is. Now, what John Mack did was interview people yeah, that's not physics. I don't care about that approach. It's not part of the Galileo project. So when you ask me, there was someone in the past that was interviewing people and basi basing his theory or arguments on what people told him, that has no overlap whatsoever with my work, with the work of the Galileo project. Of course, you know, it may well be that if there are objects that were visiting and these people were really abducted and maybe indeed there is some connection, but just the mere fact that people are telling you something doesn't make it real. I understand. I understand. Well, and, and I'll go back to, uh, you know, my, my professor, uh, Dr. Henry Lee, who has a famous saying, who says, people lie, the evidence never lies. And we'll close the subject on that with that comment, uh, because I don't want to get sent to detention. And I think it's time for a little break. We're about 51 minutes in on the broadcast. We're just a little bit more than past halfway done. Uh, so I think now is a good time for y'all to uh, go to the bathroom, uh, get a fresher upper on your cup of tea, and maybe a couple of biscuits, and then settle back in for the rest of the show. It also says they're probably vegetarians because they would realize the benefits of such a diet. Who wrote this book? Scientists who've been persecuted for their beliefs. That means they're unemployed. I can make fun of it, then forget it. This is serious. I don't know what got into me. There are pictures. Dr. Bimber, one of the authors of the book. Dad. I just asked his name. You had a tone. So there are two reasons why extraterrestrials will visit us. To make contact in the spirit of exploration and furthering the knowledge of the universe. Or the other reason, they're hostile. They've used up all the resources on their planet. They're looking to harvest our planet next. And now, the rest of the show. 
Okay. Now, uh, next question. Um, now, uh, I've heard you say this a lot of times. You know, humans may not be special, right? We may not be the smartest kids on the cosmic block. But my question is, we may not be the smartest kids on the cosmic block. We might be the meanest, though. <laughs> I mean, you know, I was looking at where we come from, you know, for, you know, and, and we're not that far removed from the chimpanzee. If we're not the smartest, but possibly we're the meanest, that doesn't sound like it's going to work out too well for us. No, no, but uh, okay, I have hope for the future because <laughs> okay, good. Please, uh, uh, for two, for two reasons. For, for two reasons. One, indeed, uh, throughout human history, you see uh, a lot of crimes and, and um, injustice being done by people who want to feel superior relative to other people. And the best example is the Second World War, where 75 million people died as a result of the Nazi regime. Uh, that, and, and the, um, you know, that, that is 10 times more than COVID-19 uh, killed throughout the the world you know so far and yeah. just 10 times you know 10 times more by just a group of people deciding to feel superior relative to other people that that's amazing to me um and my hope is that if we find a smarter kid on our block it would basically demonstrate that the differences between us humans are not so great you know they're meaningless in a way because there is a much smarter kid on our block and then perhaps that would teach us an important lesson and uh, convince us to treat each other with more respect as equal members of the human species. That's point number one that I wanted to bring up. Uh, but the second is, I'm hopeful about science because I think in the future, artificial intelligence will be used for science. And when you design an artificial intelligence algorithm that learns from experience and you know it can process much more data than the human brain can can process um, eventually if science will be done by ai systems uh, it may lack the prejudice it may lack this uh, ambition to show that you are smarter than others to uh, uh, stick to old ideas just because they maintain your image as an expert, you know. Uh, and so my hope is that when science will be done by AI systems, it will progress much more rapidly because right now, uh, you know, human scientists are suppressing new knowledge. If we find that the first interstellar object looks different than all the rocks that we have seen, an AI system will say it doesn't look like a rock. You know, it looks more like a rocket booster that we launched in 1966 that is called 2020SO that was also discovered a year ago and by the same telescope and uh, it, it had been pushed by reflecting sunlight and had no cometary tail. So it, the AI system will say that object looks uh, very similar to Oumuamua and uh, we know that uh, this object 2020SO was artificially produced therefore Oumuamua may be artificially produced so my hope is the AI system will have no prejudice and will not be entrenched in some baggage that it carries from the past and that's why I think that maybe our technological kids you know these AI systems that currently drive cars you know that's uh, one of the babies of Elon Musk that we mentioned before the yeah. self-driving cars and uh, maybe in the future you know it will also do some science and that will help us uh, avoid the mistakes of the past of prejudice suppressing the progress of science and and also 
so I, I, you know, it may, if, if it does science, it may also help us in other ways not to be so cruel and mean as the way you mentioned. Uh, so I'm, I, my hope is with our technological kids, you see. Uh, so even though we came from the chimpanzees, we are creating AI systems that will play a more significant role in our future. And my hope is they will not inherit all the faults that we have as humans. Can, can I give you another um, um, nature metaphor? <laughs> uh, I was thinking about, um, you know, why do we go into space, right? Um, we've been thinking about space since the time of ancient Greece with the Pans Mira theories that they were teaching back then, yeah. Pans Permia theories. Uh, that was back in ancient Greece, they were doing astronomy. Uh, back in the times of the, the Giza pyramids, they obviously were astronomers, right? They had to be because there's a, there's a dedication. Those pyramids are directly with those three stars. Um, the, the, the Christian cross may have been inspired by uh, the Northern cross uh, in the sky. Uh, religion and space exploration and exploration of our own origins have always been tied together. And then I look at you know, human nature, because you do this analogy a lot in your extraterrestrial book of all we have to do is look at man to predict what might have happened in the history in space. Let me look at what I know, right? So I was in Alaska recently on a, on a homicide case, and I, and I had the opportunity to um, see salmon swimming upstream. And although some made it, several salmon <laughs> jumped into the mouth of a grizzly bear. And now that salmon, they know that grizzly bears there because you see them. I learned this also from David Attenborough. You see the salmon plotting and testing. Okay, well, if I jump this far, okay, next time I got to jump farther. The same salmon will make several jumps in an attempt not to land in the grizzly bear's mouth. Are we salmon in space, Dr. Loeb? That's a very interesting question. It depends what's out there, you see, whether there is a bear or not. And um, uh, I think we are better than uh, uh, creatures uh, that are uh, not as intelligent as we are. Like, for example, the dinosaurs, you know, they were very dominant relative to their environment on Earth. And they were very proud of themselves. They ate grass. They just forgot to look up and then uh, a, 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 an asteroid, you know, a rock the size of Manhattan Island hit the ground 66 million years ago and tarnished, that. tarnished uh, their ego trip. Yeah. yeah. So uh, my point is um, we are smarter than the dinosaurs. We can monitor the sky. That's why actually the Panstars instrument discovered Oumuamua because it was built to find near Earth objects the size of a football field or larger. And then... Uh, um, in, in much the same way, if we are intelligent enough to search, you know, for other civilizations, for risks from space, then we might find something. And the, I think it's like an intelligence test. You see, uh, if we are uh, too confident in our um, in ourselves, and uh, we, we may maintain our ignorance for a long time because we don't want to look through our windows. We say, where is everybody? There is no evidence, no extraordinary evidence. Therefore, we are alone. Therefore, we are most likely the most intelligent in the world. Uh, and that's pretty much it. If we don't invest funds in the search, then, um, you know, we might not subscribe to uh, this elite uh, group of uh, 
intelligent species that uh, existed and flourished for billions of years in the cosmos you see so i think it's an intelligence test in a way because uh, when you become conscious the first thing you recognize is yourself because that's where most of the information comes from the, the things that happen to you very close and so you, you you start getting attached to yourself because that's where most of the information comes from so uh, but then a, a higher level of consciousness is when you realize that actually you're embedded in a bigger environment and you're not the only one and there are others that look like you and they behave like you and and then you realize that they're they might be better than you in some ways so that's a higher level of, of consciousness and unfortunately you know my daughters when i uh, you know they got to that level when i brought them to the kindergarten they met other kids that are smarter than they are unfortunately as a civilization we are not there yet we are still pretending to be very special unique and privileged uh, in the sense of being the most intelligent species anywhere because the argument is we don't have extraordinary evidence that to the contrary and my point is if we don't invest extraordinary funds in the search we will never find that evidence so i think it's an an intelligence test for us um that once we invest those funds and find something we would recognize the company that we are in and that would have a dramatic effect on our future because we could learn from them if there are things that are smarter than we are for example we can find equipment that is operated by artificial intelligence at a level much higher than what we developed so far and you know if we import this technology to earth we can make a lot of money so actually instead of us making very small steps every few years we might have a leap into our future by finding another civilization that was uh, in the future so to speak of us uh, because they formed the billionaires before us and uh, you know so i think it's just one of these cases where the impact on the way we think about ourselves and and it's not just with respect to technology it's also the impact about the way we perceive our place in the universe you know our aspirations for space uh, and also the spiritual implications you know yeah. because i attended the forum at the washington national cathedral uh, about a month ago with jeff bezos and he was talking about space tourism and having a business plan for that and uh, i was thinking that there is no business plan for leaving the solar system you know you can't make money by sending spacecraft out of the solar system nobody would pay for that uh, and um, the only reason for space exploration is some sense of spirituality because you realize there is something bigger than our immediate environment and uh, therefore spirituality is linked to space exploration and and that's why i get a lot of feedback from you know religious people like uh you know i was contacted a few months ago by a rabbi from uh, um, Ann Arbor, Michigan, who said that he gave a sermon on my book, Exoterrestrial, for the Jewish high holidays. And uh, I then realized that indeed, you know, people find a spiritual context to this discussion. Yeah, it was funny. I mean, I was raised uh, Roman Catholic, uh, and I've been uh, recovering ever since, uh, <laughs> as most Roman Catholics. I feel like the Roman Catholics and the Jewish people kind of have that in, like, deep inside of us. We're all just kind of guilty. I don't know. <laughs> like, I've always felt really close with all my Jewish friends. I'm like, did you feel guilty? Yeah, I feel guilty. I don't know why, but I just feel guilty. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, but, for example, this Pope, um, he's kind of a you know, uh, renaissance man, as it were, and he came out and he's like, hey, listen, you know, 
the sins of the church in the past are bad and we recognize that if you want to be gay that's fine god still loves you you know he says normal things that a normal person would say right um and uh and i think he made a quote something like well if the, if the aliens came down i'd be happy to baptize them and i found <laughs> that to be really arrogant even though he seems like a cool guy um but it seems like a very arrogant thing what makes you think i think you even said that what makes you think that they want to be baptized by you well uh, uh, the, twi the twist that i give on this subject is that um you know um uh, a very advanced scientific uh, species may be a good approximation to God because it might be able to produce phenomena that we previously assigned to God. It, it could, for example, uh, form synthetic life out of nothing, you know, out of a soup of chemicals in the laboratory. It may even be able to create a baby universe in the laboratory if it understands how to unify quantum mechanics and gravity. So, you know, these are qualities we assign to God in religious uh, scripts. And uh, what I'm saying is that we get, um, you know, uh, as we make advances in science, we get closer to that uh, image of God in the sense that uh, we are almost able to create synthetic life in our laboratories. And um, eventually, you know, that's just within a century of science, modern science. And if you just wait a few more centuries, we might be able to do more. And um, therefore, if we meet a civilization, an, an advanced scientific civilization that is well ahead of us by millennia or maybe millions of years or billions of years, we might find it to be a good approximation to God. And, uh, well, I mean, and so in a, way, in a way, what I'm saying is uh, that religion and advanced science uh, may come together if we meet such an entity. You know, there was evidence in 1966 of, uh, of a UFO in Australia at the Westfall School, documented with a high-resolution photograph and witnessed by 37 school children simultaneously with identical drawings that match the photograph and adult teachers, not enough proof. Is the bar of proof gonna keep moving down the line the more evidence we get so once we meet a goal we've got the photograph it's not pixelated here it is it's got no bolts it's got no seams it seems intelligently designed nope not good enough you got to get an interview with them now. oh no no i think um, it's a matter of common sense you see it's just like evidence presented in the courtroom uh, if you can demonstrate with good enough evidence beyond a reasonable doubt that something doesn't look like a rock then it nobody would be able to say that it's a rock it's it's just the intermediate steps you know when the evidence is incomplete it's not conclusive that uh, people can raise doubts and that's that's fine i mean so the goal for example of the galileo project is to get that uh, evidence that will clarify the nature of objects that are otherwise too fuzzy or um you know that we we don't fully know what they are and um and uh, i think it's not a philosophical question it's just a question of getting good enough evidence and once we have it and, and it doesn't require huge investment of funds relative to other projects of science i think it will become clear you know and it's possible that it's a mixed bag it's very likely to be a mixed bag that there are lots of objects that are either birds drones or airplanes or things that are human made or natural phenomena most of them and then uh, every now and then we will see you know it's sufficient to see one object that is different uh, and and have good enough data about it 
to demonstrate that you know this is very intriguing and and it's not a natural object and it's not human made so we we are just trying it's a fishing expedition we're trying to find whether there is any fish like that and if we do find it and it will be done in the scientific way i don't think there will be any doubt you see the problem with previous discussions is there was never a scientific endeavor intended to collect that data so it was always anecdotal you know some people saw by chance something that looks unusual they weren't really prepared for that and they saw it and they the evidence was not conclusive uh, and it was not collected in the scientific way for just to give an example you know when the military personnel report about those experiences they have they're using a camera in a cockpit of a fighter jet that is very jittery and it's not a controlled experiment you can't really tell what the objects that they are looking at are doing because the cockpit is moving around and right. so if we use telescope systems over which we have full control we know exactly what the instruments were doing and we collect the data in the scientific way so that it goes into computer systems that analyze it in the standard way and we can release the data as an open data set i think you know going through this uh, scientific process will raise any doubts and it's possible that we will not find anything but it's also possible that we'll find something unusual I think that we're going to continue to find things just like, you know, you said, you know, you could, you're probably going to be able to predict the next Oumuamua uh, eventually, right? Um, right. What about Tabby Star? A drop of 22% in the starlight. Um, isn't that overwhelming proof of something technological? No, because you can get it just by any object in front of the star that is blocking its light. And the, the question is, could it be, for example, you know, rocky, a rocky object, uh, either a planet or a fragment of a planet, you know, that uh, when you're looking at uh, a, a protoplanetary disk, you know, the, there are Lego pieces that are making the planets, you know, so you're starting for small pieces and then you're putting them together to make the bigger planets. And it could be a soup of things. So, so in yeah, in, in principle, it could be just a natural object uh you know one of these lego pieces that make planets uh, we call them planetesimals and uh, that is blocking the light from the star when it's passing in front of it uh, along the line of sight that uh, when we look at the object it's possible um so just the mere change in in the uh, the brightness of a star doesn't really tell you that it must be artificial uh, you need more data and i want to play you something that uh, I, I think NASA sent this out. It's the sounds from the moon of Jupiter. Uh, take a listen and see if you can just help me figure out why this doesn't sound exactly like a computer. This is uh, sent out by NASA, and it's saying this is the wind recorded off the moon, off of uh, either Jupiter or Saturn, uh, but it's one of the moons, and NASA yeah. just released that. That freaks me out. That sounds like a horror movie inside of a computer from the Space 2001 Space Odyssey. <laughs> well, this, this data was collected by... Uh, a spacecraft called Juno that uh, went by uh, the moon of Jupiter called uh, Ganymede and uh, recorded, you know, the vibrations uh, of uh, sound that uh, are in it. And, um, you know, it, 
there is nothing really peculiar you know we know that uh, there are sound waves in every object there are waves uh, uh, in the earth uh, you know these are the acoustic waves that we can uh, monitor when with seism seismographs that we put on the surface of the earth and uh, we also know the sun has uh, sound waves in it that are excited all the time and we can measure the 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 surface of the sun moving back and forth as a result of that and uh, so every object has some noise in it the uh, sound waves bouncing back and forth like in a drum and um there is nothing unusual about it we expect it and you learn something about the structure of the object when you measure those sound waves so i wouldn't between layman it sounds like people 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 i mean it sounds <laughs> like a computer uh no but but these uh, these frequencies of the sound waves uh, can be understood based on the physics okay. of of that uh, of that moon in other words yeah. the characteristic frequency the kind of sound that you hear uh is related to the size of the moon and the uh, average density in it and so forth don't be scared No, no, don't be scared. Okay. okay. <laughs> All right. You talk about in the Galileo project, we are not going to be entertaining fringe science. And as a casualist, now I know what it fringe science is in the forensic science community because I work in the field of forensic science. I know who out there is full of poop and I know who out there is legit. Now, as a casualist in the world of space and all of this, uh, there's a lot of media out there that to consume information. And um, some people theorize, uh, for example, uh, David Icke uh, from England theorizes that Saturn is a broadcast station and that we're living in a simulation or a matrix. Is that what you call fringe science? Uh, no, I mean, what we are referring to is, um, uh, you know, there were uh, claims that um, some unidentified aerial phenomena are behaving in ways that require extensions of what we understand about nature. So extensions of the standard model of physics and uh, perhaps, um, you know, not just um, vehicles that operate by the laws of physics as we know them, but some, some other type of propulsion, extra dimensions, things like that. And the philosophy we operate by in the Galileo project is just like uh, the approach taken for any uh, physics experiment where we assume that what we know about nature in terms of the laws of physics apply and then we collect data and try to explain it now of course if we fail to explain it if it behaves in way that in a way that is really strange for example if you see an object moving faster than light you know that that's something we've never uh, we would never expect based on what we know about Einstein's theory of relativity. And uh, if we see something like that, or if we see some violation of a, a sacred principle, like conservation of energy, conservation of momentum, or gravity, then, uh, then uh, we would have to think twice about it. Maybe, maybe there is something really unusual. Uh, so that you could, with your discovery, change the entire understanding of physics so well if it's if it's required so that's why i'm saying the first approach we take is that of a standard physics experiment where we use what we know about nature you know the laws of physics to interpret the data that will be the default that would be the approach we take we will not jump into speculations about different laws of nature unless we are really with our back to the wall in the sense that we can't explain what we are seeing otherwise
Okay. Uh, I'm going to try to run off a couple of quick questions before I let you go. Um, all right. Just real quickly. Can you tell me what is gravity? Yeah. So gravity, according to Einstein's theory of general relativity, is just the curvature of space and time. So a, a, an object that has some mass, like the sun, for example, uh, it curves space and time. You can think of it as a trampoline uh, that uh, you put a, a heavy object in the middle of the trampoline and as a result the surface of the trampoline is curved and uh, when you take a, a ball and and uh, like a ping pong ball and uh, give it a kick on the surface of the trampoline the fact that it's curved uh, changes the trajectory of the ball if if there was no ma heavy object and the trampoline surface was flat the ball would move in a straight line but when you put this heavy mass in the middle uh, the ball that was supposed to go in a straight line actually can go in a circle and that's why for example the earth goes in a circle around the sun uh, so there is no force it's just that the sun curves uh, space and time around it and the earth is trying to follow a straight line but because space is curved uh, the earth is actually moving around the sun that's what gravity is Right. Okay. Thank you. Um, and then, so also, because I think a lot of people here, they think of centrifugal force, right? Because the earth is spinning at, I don't know how many thousands miles of an hour. We don't feel it, but we're spinning pretty quick, aren't we? Well, yeah. I mean, so the earth is spinning around its axis. That's what's changing day and night. You know, that, that that's why we see uh, night for part of the day and then uh, day uh, we see daylight uh, the sunlight because the earth is spinning around its axis and by the way this is not guaranteed for all planets there are planets that are so close to their star that they are tidally locked so they have a permanent day side and a permanent night side in fact the planet that is in, in, around the star that is nearest to us Proxima Centauri is believed to be in that state. And if you were to live on that planet and you would be on the day side, you would see the day forever. If you were on the, my daughter say that we should, if we ever go there, we should buy a house on the sunset uh, strip. The, the, this is the yeah. strip that separates the day side from the night side where you can see the sunset forever. Yeah. Um, so, so anyway, that's the spin of the, of the earth around, uh, you know, around its axis. But then, in addition to that, the Earth moves around the sun. And that's what you end up with, you know, the, the seasons as a result of that, because we are oriented differently relative to the sun as we move around the sun. Mm -hmm. uh, because the spin axis of the Earth is not lined up with the orbital uh, spin axis around the sun. And so we end up uh, seeing the seasons as we move around the sun. And, and we move around the sun, because uh, you know, at a relatively high speed of... Um, you know, of order um, 20 miles uh, per second, you know, very high speed. Um, and uh, uh, there is a centrifugal force, which is simply a result, you know, because we're moving around the sun, there is, if, if you turn off gravity, we would fly out, you know, at a certain, mm -hmm. so that's a, a force trying to keep us away from the sun. Uh, and uh, then there is the gravity that, 
uh, ties us to the sun. So they balance each other and then we move on a circle, basically. And then gravity would also affect biological, uh, the, the formation of biological entities on any planet. So we are this tall and this heavy and this short and so forth because of our gravity. So if, if say, we found extraterrestrial uh, life force on a planet the size of, say, Jupiter, they would be very tiny. And a or correct? Yes, um, that's right. Um, yeah, so there are several factors that affect life. One of them is indeed the gravity, as you mentioned. Uh, another one is, of course, the uh, level of illumination by the star. So, uh, how warm it is on the surface. Life as we know it is based on liquid water. And for that to exist, you need the surface temperature to be roughly that of the Earth. And you also need an atmosphere because if you don't have an atmosphere, then uh, when you warm up uh, uh, water ice, it ends up going straight into gas and you don't get liquid water. So you really need an atmospheric pressure to, to maintain uh, liquid water. And that's what we have here on Earth. We have an atmosphere. So that's an important um, you know, condition for life as we know it, to, to have a surface temperature similar to the Earth. But there is also... Uh, you know, the, the, the type of light that the star generates, you know, so the sun generates visible light. That's why our, our eyes are sensitive to visible light. Right. Uh, but then uh, a star like Proxima Centauri, that is the nearest one, uh, which is the most common type of star. It has only 12% of the mass of the, the sun. Red dwarf, the, is that right? Uh, yeah, it's a dwarf star. And, and it emits, it has half the surface temperature of the sun. So as a result, it emits mostly infrared light. And that's so, why the aliens have those things on their eyes right there, because, you know, they're like, they have bug eyes because they're low light beings and they need those things on their eyes to see on Earth. Otherwise, they'll be blinded. So everybody out there, just that's a little tip. All right. All right. Now, here I got a question from an actual uh, Australian news reporter. Want to be a pass this long? And it kind of goes with a tweet that I saw earlier today. It was a, it was a what do you call those things? Memes. It was a little girl with a pair of binoculars with uh, a, that said SETI on it. And then on top of her head uh, that she can't see is a little bird that said UAP as she's looking out into space. The bird is on her head. Okay. And so here's the question um, from uh, investigative journalist Ross Colhart, uh, author of the book In Plain Sight and uh, his movie uh, uh, Phenomenon, he says, uh, do you think, Professor Loeb, it's a folly for SETI to be using radio waves as a detection method for an alien civilization, even when early understanding of quantum communication suggests that no ET civilization would use anything as antiquated as RF to transmit across the cosmos? And at what cost was that yeah i i completely agree that um you know that we developed the uh, radio communication over the past uh, century 126 years ago uh, marconi transmitted the first signal across the atlantic and um so uh, the chance of us seeing another civilization exactly at our stage it's very small, you know, a hundred years is a small fraction. It's just the one part in uh, uh, tens of million of, of the earth, uh, the age, you know, and, and, and so um, the chance of us 
finding a partner, another civilization, which is exactly the same technological stage that is using radio signals for communication is quite small. And, you know, the entire search for radio signals or electromagnetic signals is just like trying to have a phone conversation. You need the counterpart to be active when you're looking. And, and it may well be that they are at a different evolutionary phase. They they are a billion years ahead of us. They're not using radio waves anymore. That's an ancient technology as far as they are concerned. Or they died. You know, they're not around anymore because their star is not around. So a much better approach is actually uh, to look for relics that they left behind. It's, uh, it's just like looking for a package in your mailbox. You know, the sender may not be alive. Uh, you you just need to to look for it, and you will find it, uh, irrespective of what happened to the sender, whether it's active right now, whether it's a, a, alive or not. Uh, and uh, I think you know this is, I think, a much better, much more robust uh, way to find evidence for an extraterrestrial technological civilization. That's the approach that was not taken so far. The Galileo project is really the first scientific project to follow that path. Tomorrow on Christmas Eve, there is a movie coming out, uh, and I think the main character is based on you, and it's played by Leonardo DiCaprio. It's a movie premiering on Netflix called Don't Look Up. A uh, couple questions. I think that character is based on you. And two, are you happy about that? And three, are you going to watch it? Because I'm going to watch it. Oh, yeah, I'll be very interested to see, but I don't know if it's based on me. And um, uh, yeah, I mean, if they would have asked me, I would say that my wife would have liked to have Brad Pitt play my role. Uh, but uh, Leonardo the not that bad. She'll be okay with that. Substitute. No, um, uh, but um, of course, you know, um, what matters to me is uh, the reality, you know, not the movies made on it. And I, I should tell you that when my book came out, uh, I had about 30. Uh, communications from uh, film producers, uh, documentary producers uh, that wanted to make something about inspired by my book. And um, so um, there is definitely a lot of interest uh, in this subject. And, you know, I, I, I hope that we are making history, you know, when we collect the data, there would be much more material for future movies. And uh, we'll try to help Hollywood fund its uh, film industry by finding more evidence. And ladies and gentlemen, Professor Avi Loeb, he is uh, talking about hope, optimism, science, and the future. And I urge everyone to buy that book, Extraterrestrial. Not too late to buy it. Go to the bookstore. Be old school. Get in your car. Go down to the Books a Million and go get a couple of copies. Wrap them up. Put them under the tree. And it's a great gift. And all I want to say to you, Avi Loeb, Professor Loeb, thank you so much for joining me. I had a great time. You made my Merry Christmas so happy. So I really appreciate you and everything that you're doing. Thank you so much for having me. It was really a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you very much, Avi. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. And that was our interview with Harvard professor Avi Loeb. Pretty exciting stuff. I want to urge everybody to go to harvard.org forward slash Galileo or go to crimescenetimemachine.com. You can make donations there. There's links there to buy his book. And um, I, I want to thank uh, Professor Loeb for being so generous with his time and for all of you out there in the universe 
I'd like to say Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Happy Holidays, and of course, have a safe and Happy New Year. And remember, everybody, keep your feet on the ground and keep reaching for the stars. And as always, I love you. Damn it, Sarah.
You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Son, we live in a world that has walls, and those walls have to be guarded by men with guns. Who's gonna do it? You? You, Lieutenant Weinberg? I have a greater responsibility than you can possibly fathom. You weep for Santiago and you curse the Marines. You have that luxury. You have the luxury of not knowing what I know. That Santiago's death, while tragic, probably saved lives. And my existence, while grotesque and incomprehensible to you, saves lives. You don't want the truth because deep down in places you don't talk about at parties. You want me on that wall. You need me on that wall. We use words like honor, code, loyalty. We use these words as the backbone of a life spent defending something. You use them as a punchline. I have neither the time nor the inclination to explain myself to a man who rises and sleeps under the blanket of the very freedom that I provide and then questions the manner in which I provide it. I would rather you just said thank you and went on your way. Otherwise, I suggest you pick up a weapon and stand a post. Either way, I don't give a damn what you think you are entitled to. What we are dealing with here is a perfect engine, uh, an eating machine. It's really a miracle of evolution. All this machine does is swim and eat and make little sharks. And that's all. Now, why don't you take a long, close look at this sign? Those proportions are correct. Love to prove that, wouldn't you? Get your name into the National Geographic. <laughs>